What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 33 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded and pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening today. In today's episode, we're speaking to Professor Janet Kolodner. As both a cognitive scientist and a learning scientist, Janet has had a long and illustrious career exploring learning, memory and problem solving as they relate to both computers and people. She pioneered the case-based reasoning method, which allows a computer to reason and learn from its experience and has extended that work into designing learning resources and experiences. Janet is a retired Regents Professor at the School of Interacting Computing at the Georgia Institute of Technology. She was the founding editor-in-chief of the Journal of the Learning Scientists, was a founding executive officer for the International Society of the Learning Scientists, and is now a visiting professor at the Lynch School of Education at Boston College. In this episode, we're talking about a series of resources and really a teaching approach that was developed by Janet and her team over the course of over 10 years. And I'm really excited about this conversation. In the last ERRR episode, I spoke with John Lama from PBL Works, and this episode builds on and extends that conversation to get into the nitty-gritty of how both skills and knowledge can be built in tandem through project-based learning. We discussed the main challenges, sequencing, getting to the science, and getting to a classroom culture that Janet and her team faced in developing the project-based inquiry science curriculum. We talk about the micro and macro inquiry cycles that occur throughout the PBIS units, the impact of the PBIS units on how students see themselves as learners and people, and the mechanisms by which learning can take place in a project-based environment. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking to Janet. I found it a rich and deep conversation, and I hope you enjoy this discussion as much as I did. Before we start the main interview, a quick reminder that if you'd like to receive a weekly rundown of interesting articles, facts, and edu readings, please feel free to jump onto ollilevel.com and to sign up. And also a big thank you to all those who have supported and continue to support the show via Patreon. It means the world to me that there are listeners out there who enjoy the ERRR podcast enough by making a coffee-sized donation each month. To sign up to support the show, just jump onto ollilevel.com and scroll down if you're on a mobile or look to the right sidebar on a computer to find the Patreon button. Thanks for considering supporting the show. And with that, let's jump straight into this episode of the ERRR podcast with Professor Janet Kolodner. Professor Janet Kolodner, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. My pleasure. Nice to be here. Fantastic, Janet. The first question we usually ask is, if you meet someone and they ask you, hi, Janet, what is it that you do? What's your answer? Well, I'm a learning scientist and I'm interested in designing learning experiences that are engaging, engaging over long periods of time, and that lead to, to very rigorous learning, but in a way that encourages the learners to remain engaged over the long periods of time needed to learn. Uh, difficult things. Cool. In your view, and this is a new question, this is the second time I've asked this to a guest, and I, I'm, I'm really keen to start the interview from this place, but 
What, in your view, is the purpose of school-based education? <laughs> I was just writing a part of a paper about that today. Mm. Um, I think that schools should be getting people ready to, to be the grown-up people that they will be. There are things they need to learn to be good citizens. There are things they need to learn to get around in the world, understand what's going on. There are things they need to learn to live a healthy life. The things they need to learn to thrive. I think that that's the important thing that schools should be doing. And I think that schools should be, it should act to give everybody the edges they need to be able to imagine what they could be and do someday and to move forward in those directions. Okay, cool. What I'm hearing, what I'm hearing is kind of, in your answer there is kind of everything, you know, from kind of skills, knowledge, affective, you know, life skills, things like that. I'm wondering if there's anything that you think should not be within the remit of school-based education. Is there anything we, we, we could say that, oh, for an adult, this kind of thing's important, but we don't have to teach that at school because the curriculum is crowded enough already. We don't, I don't want to teach or inculcate religion in school. I think that, that that's a separate thing. But I think that, you know, the good interpersonal values is an important thing. And I think that schools should be sharing and making these things happen with, with families and guardians and people in the community and organizations in the community. I mean, t- uh, children, youth, they're our uh, most valuable asset. We need to be developing them. Couldn't agree more. Could not agree more. Maybe a good place for us to start. Janet is just kind of asking the broad question because today we're talking primarily about what I would term probably problem-based learning, whereas the previous discussion I had was actually yesterday morning with John Lama from PBL Works about project-based learning. So I'm kind of Uh, putting these together. I'm really keen as a grounding for you to try to explain to listeners what exactly it was you were trying to achieve when you set out over 10 years ago now to develop the science resources, project-based inquiry science resources that we're going to be speaking about in detail today? So my children are now 34 and 36 years old. They were coming home from school and they were telling me about science being boring. I mean, and they were kind of confused about it because whenever we talked about science at home, it was certainly not boring. And they knew that mommy and daddy were scientists of, you know, of some sort, computer scientists. And at the same time, I got started in artificial intelligence. And in particular, I was trying to make the computer learn from its experiences. And I'm a pioneer of an approach called case-based reasoning that has the computer learn from its experiences. And I know you're going to ask me more about case-based reasoning later on. So I won't say a lot more about it now, but the computer was learning from its experiences. And it seemed to me that the best way I was not in education at the time. I mean, I was a professor, but I was not as a professor of computer science. I was not in the education field in terms of research at the time, but it felt to me like there was an awful lot I was learning about making the computer learn from its experiences that would be relevant to people. What we learned about the processing involved in learning from experience when we made it happen on the computer is that there's certain kinds of processing when the computer was having an experience 
or learning about somebody else's experience. There are certain kinds of processing that the computer needed to do in order to be able to index that experience to make it accessible and in order to represent the experience in such a way that it could be productively reused later on. Mm. And we learned a lot as well about the algorithms that might be used at the time when an experience is happening versus having another new experience and it needs to go back and retrieve the old one. And it was my belief because we were modeling this on what we saw in people that there was something I was learning that was applicable to people and that there was an awful lot that I knew about how to help people learn better from experiences. And if we had curriculum in which people were having experiences that they could learn from, it would be more engaging. My kids were coming home and complaining about science. It would be more engaging. It would give opportunities for those who are learning to be asking questions before they were told answers to things. Maybe they wouldn't be told answers to things at all. Mm. But it would give them the opportunity. They'd be in situations where they'd be asking questions as they went along to try to understand things. And then we could get them to reflect on their experiences in the ways that would put those experiences into their own memories in ways that could be remembered later on at the right times and with the content in them that would be useful to make them productively, you know, to make them useful later on. Mm. Very concise, right from the story of, you know, the motivation of your own kids coming home and thinking someone was brought right through to that link to computers and what you learned with computer learning. You mentioned a few things there that I'd love to go into a bit more detail on. You mentioned the idea of indexing. Could you give us a bit more detail on what you mean when you say indexing and what indexing means in the computer context and if that's different from the human memory context? So indexing basically is a means of access. So an index in a book, you know, you go to the end of the book and you look up your keyword or concept or whatever it is, and it's got the page number that you go to. We thought about indexing in the computer, kind of like indexing in a database, but we were interested in not so much keywords, okay, but the ability of the computer to pull out partial matches, to pull out from its memory things that it knew, things that it had recorded previously that were similar enough to a new situation that it was encountering that there was likely to be something it could learn from the old situation and that it applied to the new situation. Indexing really at that point meant pointers into memory or it meant labels that we put on to labels we put on things in the computer memory so that they could be recalled later on in a new situation. So computer memory. Well, at the time, we were actually implementing this with indexes like you have in a database. But I came to start to think about those indexes not so much as indexes in a database as what I just said, said now as labels on an item. Okay. You know, very similar the way that, you know, that all these recommender systems work nowadays, right? So you've got, you know, you buy a book and Amazon 
suggest 10 other books that you might like, right? Mm. Okay. And it's because of the labels that they have attached to what you bought and the labels they have attached to others, the things in their database and the labels they have attached to you and the labels they have attached to the other people who have bought the similar things, right? So we were aiming for something much smarter than that. Amazon gives you 10 books, you know, or 100 or something when you select one to buy. We wanted the computer to come up with just a few things that, you know, were likely to be most similar, most most useful, Mm -hmm. most usefully similar is what I should say. So we tried to have labels that had some meaning. I don't think I should go into the ins and outs of doing that. But the deal is that human memory sort of works that way, right? We understand things, you know, by applying knowledge that is what we need at that moment. How do our minds find that? Well, there's got to be some kind of labeling scheme. I mean, we don't, you know, the way it's implemented underneath with neurons, I don't know anything about that. But somehow the neurons are implementing some kind of labeling scheme. So the idea is with people then, when you go from case-based reasoning computers to people, is that people would learn well from experience. One of the things that people would need to be able to do is to somehow describe their experiences to themselves in their memories in ways that would be productive for remembering them later on. That's really what indexing means, okay? The way they're describing something to themselves. And we had found out, we had found ways of doing that. We asked the computer to identify surprises, to identify reasons why something they were expecting happened the way they were expecting it or happened a different way than what they were expecting, what it was about the situation that made the outcome what it was. And those were the kinds of things that we thought if we got people thinking about those things, that they would be able to label their experience as well too. When you get to the idea of the content of the experience, it's very similar. I mean, an old experience will be useful in a new situation to the extent that you understand what it was about the old situation that was responsible for the outcomes in that situation. Mm. Okay, so if we have people interpret their own experiences that way, okay, and index them according to those things and also to anticipate when something they've learned through an experience might be useful later on and label it that way as well. Then they'd be able to remember old experiences at uh, appropriate times and to reuse them. That's so powerful, Janet. And I mean, if I were to apply some different language to what you're talking about, my understanding of what you're talking about is really building effective schema that accurately represent a given learning domain or something like that, which relates to the idea of indexing. And maybe there's a difference there. And if there is, I'd love for you to tell us more about that. And then secondly, there you were talking about the kind of preconditions to transfer, which of course is the ultimate goal of teaching in many ways so that students can apply their learning to new and novel situations. So am I on the right track there? You're on the right track. 
so the thing about schemas is that usually when one talks about schemas, one thinks about general something that's generalized from a lot of different experiences. Okay. And what we were talking about was remembering particular experiences. And why particular ones? Well, because particular ones have, I mean, anytime you generalize something, you're left with, you know, trending towards a median or something, right? And experiences, you know, and what you know and when it's applicable, don't trend towards a median, right? That something's applicable because it shares details beyond what generally describes things. So we talked about really keeping track of what, you know, what's special about the situation. So it's not just reasoning based on generalized rules or generalized schema, but reasoning, getting to the very best thing in memory that might be applicable. Maybe our understanding of schema is a, is a bit different, but I, I would have thought yeah. that that kind of, uh, what you're saying is the generalization is perhaps the kind of, if you imagine like a concept map, the generalization of main points and the finesse or the, the fine points or the the case-specific examples would be kind of other ideas that are built off those main points that talk about exceptions and things like that, which would also form part of the schema. Yes, except that the schema comes from, you have to think about the schema coming from the experiences as opposed to the schema being there and the experiences building off of them. Oh, yes, yes. So in other words, the schema is generalized from the experiences and the experiences and the ways that they specialize the schema mm-hmm. are hanging off of it, oh, right? Def- they're not building off of it, but they're hanging off of it. The this person- might be going too deep into, you know, no. might not be of interest to people, people who are interested I, I, I in pedagogy. Listeners will love this stuff. Yeah, of course, the human has to build the schema in the first place. The schema doesn't, you know, just exist in yeah. the in there. They're not bought, built with it, born with these schemas. We may be born with right. some kind of language kind of modules or something, but probably not that. And also, you know, something you're alluding to there is, and this is something you mentioned in case-based reasoning, is the iterative nature and in some ways reciprocal, you know, experience will build the schema and the schema will also act as the anchors for new information to be linked on. And without an extant schema, it's very hard for new information to be assimilated into memory and things like that. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Now, you also mentioned something about transfer. Yes. And, you know, when I first got started doing this, I didn't even know the word transfer. But transfer is a really tricky thing. There are people out there who say that it doesn't happen. We can't make it happen. It doesn't happen at school anyway. And one of the things that I was trying to do, if I now put it into transfer language, right, is I was trying to figure out the reasoning that we could have somebody do, the reasoning about their experiences that we could have people do that would lead them, yeah, to be able to access what's relevant in the memory and be able to use it. Now, there are a lot of different, a lot of different things, you know, processes that are necessary to be able to find something in memory that's useful and then be able to apply it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm not going to tell you that I think at one point in time, I would have told you I had a new model for transfer that, you know, that included the access and all of that. But I'm not going to tell you that I have a model that covers transfer. 
But what I am going to tell you is that if you look at everything that's involved in being able to reuse something you've learned, access is a really important thing. Judging whether whatever you recalled was applicable is an important thing. Figuring out how to apply it and make the adaptations to the new situation is an important thing Mm. as well. And people can have trouble with transfer because any one of those things isn't, you know, they're, they're unable to do any one of those things. So just because somebody can remember something doesn't mean they can transfer. And just because they remembered it and they know how it's applicable doesn't mean they can fully transfer whatever they learned from the old situation either. Mm. And you mentioned something earlier as well, which was anticipation and the, the way that anticipation helps to help people kind of work out when something is likely to be relevant in future. So that was an interesting idea as well. So the point there is that to the extent that, I mean, we found this out in the computer, but I think it's true with people too, to the extent that you can anticipate when something will be useful, you have more of a chance of retrieving it at the right time. Mm. And in fact, that that may also be related to prior knowledge because the amount of prior knowledge that a learner has will also influence their ability to anticipate when the new information is likely to be useful in future? Well, the the prior knowledge just plays so many different roles. I mean, prior knowledge is a really big, you know, important thing in being able to explain why something happened the way it did, Mm. right? Why, Why you got the outcome you did. So one of the things that we did in translating from case-based reasoning into, at the time it was called learning by design, into a way of, into science learning, okay, was to say, to look at what were the things that would be difficult for the middle school children to do, so grades six, seventh, and eighth. What were the things that would be difficult for them and figure out ways to make sure, ways to support them in doing those things. So with respect to explanation, you could think about different kids in the same classroom have different prior experience. If somebody's having trouble explaining something, somebody else might be able to offer an explanation. So we, you know, believed right from the beginning that meaning making among the collective in the classroom was a really important thing. Now, I also didn't know the phrase meaning making. I didn't know the word collective. You know, I mean, all those things. I was coming from artificial intelligence. Those weren't words we used. Mm. Very interesting. I think it might be a good time for us to actually jump into... Well, actually, first we need to bridge the gap between that original research and what now exists as what I believe is around 14 booklets of project-based inquiry science. So could you tell us a little bit about that journey of because we've of of moving from this very very theoretical space that we've mm-hmm. our, our con- conversation has been centered in to the kind of physical manifestation of this theory which is now these these books. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so the truth is it took a lot of years. It took like 3 years of, you know, exploration to get to the point where we could start putting units together that work. Okay, but what we did was that we put together a few units based on what case-based reasoning had to say. Vehicles in motion, where kids learn about forces and forces in motion 
through designing and racing small vehicles and their propulsion systems, uh, but they're not quite racing them. But through designing uh, small vehicles and their propulsion systems was really our first one that did everything we wanted it to do. And when I say did everything we wanted it to do, okay, we had to, I said before, we had to figure out, I said some of it before, we had to figure out what kinds of experiences would be worth learning from. Mm -hmm. We had to figure out what were the difficulties that learners might have and how to support those difficulties. We were pretty sure we needed to use the combined voices of all the peers in the classroom to make it work but we had to figure out what that meant and how to do that. We had to figure out how to keep kids interested enough, excited enough about what they were doing that they would spend, you know, eight weeks learning about forces in motion. Mm. We had to figure out some things about how to make it doable by the teacher. We had to figure out the resources that we needed to give the kids and the teachers so that they could be successful. The very first thing I did coming from this theoretical base I told you about, was to start looking at what were the pedagogies, uh, pedagogical practices that people in education were developing that were consistent with learning from experience. And I don't know how I discovered problem-based learning, but I discovered problem-based learning. I, I don't know who introduced me to it or you know, how I was introduced. But when I heard about problem-based learning, it was really clear to me that there was a good match. Mm. So problem-based learning at that time was used primarily in medical schools. It was actually developed for medical students, primarily in medical schools, for medical students who were learning how to be diagnosticians. So what they did was they gave them diagnostic problems to work on. They worked in small groups with a, they called it a tutor really was more of a facilitator. Okay, they worked in small groups with the facilitator to address these diagnostic problems. They had ways of querying the patient so that they could find out everything they needed to about the situation. They had a methodology of, from the best of each person's knowledge at the time, what do you think the diagnosis is? And they had methodology for sending people out these medical students out into the world to go and look at resources that were available and to, you know, see where that would lead them. Mm. And because they wanted them to learn about how to use such resources as a kind of, you know, lessons for practice later on, and because they wanted the medical students to learn diagnosis as well as learning the science content that they needed to learn and the medical content they needed to learn, they incorporated uh, reflective activities in several different places in the whole process. Mm. So to me, that was a really good match. Those guys knew how to sequence things and put reflection in there in order to get learning from experience, the experience of investigating something in order to diagnose, the experience of diagnosing and investigating and doing that. And what we knew how to do from case-based reasoning was the kinds of reflection that needed to happen so that people would, or we thought we knew, so that people would build the best representations in their memories of the experience, mm -hmm. okay, the best descriptions in their memories of the experience, and give them the best labels, the most productive labels 
to be able to get them back later. So we took very liberally from problem-based learning. We actually had the problem-based learning uh, gurus at the time, Howard Barrows, who basically invented problem-based learning and the people who were working with him at Southern Illinois University. We had them come and teach us, and I hired a postdoc, Cindy Mello Silver, who came from problem-based learning. Has she since become quite famous? Because I've seen the Mello Silver name around a lot. She has become quite famous. That's great. I'll have to look into her work more. Cool. And I put together a team. I specifically, you know, put together a team that included somebody from problem-based learning. So, and that happened to be Cindy. Mm. And somebody who understood interactions between people and how that leads to learning. That was a woman named Wendy Neustetter. And I don't know, there were a couple other people, but those were, I hired a technology person, Hari Narayanan. And we were the team that worked on translating from problem-based learning, which was for people who were pre-professional and already knew why they were doing what they were doing and Mm. were doing diagnosis to design because why were we doing design? One reason is that design requires the kind of iteration that learning from experience requires. So it's a good match. Another is that uh, I was at Georgia Tech, which has a you know huge education college, and I was interacting with with engineers at Georgia Tech, and uh, you know we talked about how design was such a great context for keeping kids, keeping anybody engaged over long periods of time. Mm. And, and also because when you can design something and make it work, you're putting those science concepts that we wanted people to be able to learn into practice and getting a chance to test them out. So we thought that if kids got a chance to test out the concepts they were putting into practice in the real world and see how the science worked in the real world, they'd have more reason to talk about the science and make sense of it. Mm. So there were all those, all those reasons for doing design. So like I said, Vehicles in Motion was really the first one we did where we felt like we mostly got it, you know, we got, we got it almost right. When we started out by having, by kind of, you know, dumping out on the table a bunch of stuff they could build something from, mm-hmm. like, you know, like happens in the Apollo 13 episode in real life. You know, when they when they had to design new ventilation, right? That didn't work. Kids didn't know it just took too long to design from scratch and mm. they didn't have the they didn't necessarily have the use the knowledge about use of tools, about connecting things. I mean, all this stuff that has to do with crafts and has to do with using screwdrivers and things like that. They didn't know that. Mm. There's just a great quote. I might share two quotes from your paper, actually, that really link into um, what you've just been speaking about. So you just talked about the danger of construction there, and I love this part in your in your paper, which said, construction activities, we found, can quickly turn into arts and crafts activities, where students and teachers focus on getting to a working solution by trial and error and forget to connect the construction activity to the target science. So that perfectly captures, I think, what you so were... That- Well, yeah. I mean, I was just talking about their capabilities with respect to putting things together. But but then we found, yeah, that that was an issue too, right? That they could just build and often they just, you know, the the teachers were brand new to this. They didn't Mm. know how to facilitate it. 
So often the kids would just build things, the teachers would encourage that, they'd get to solutions and you know what they learn about the science. They didn't need to use the science to get to it. Yep. So we figured out a lot of what I would call going back to the idea that they didn't know how to do construction, right? We decided that what we needed to do was to give them instructions for building something that almost worked and then have them redesign it to get to something that would work. Right. And then we also discovered times during the process of doing that when it made sense to, to sit back and think. And then the question is, how do you get kids who are building something to sit back and think? <laughs> Great question. So our answer to that was that you remember that I said we knew we needed to have, you know, the voices of all the peers in this. Mm. So our answer to that was that whatever it was they were designing had to be difficult enough so that they were going to run into some issues along the way. And we had to make sure that we stopped them at times, stopped them to talk to each other at the time they needed help, okay, and when their peers could be useful to them. Mm. And we also learned along the way that they really like being useful to each other. So we were able to make that a feature of learning by design mm. and of project-based inquiry science. Um, and not just something that happens every now and then. So one of the things that we wanted them to do was to identify what were the things they needed to learn about to be able to be successful. So every project challenge, every design challenge begins with the messing about with some set of materials. With When it's uh, vehicles in motion, what they do is they build this doesn't quite work as well as it should model of the car. And they make it go across the room and they make it go up over hills and whatever it is. And they identify, you know, why isn't it going straight? How do we make it go straight? You know, why does it stop? How can we, how can we make it go farther? Mm. Right? How can we give it the power to go over the hills? Right. And they ask the questions and they ask the questions in that language. They don't ask in scientific language. They don't ask about friction. Mm -hmm. Right. But they ask their questions in the language that is that's language they use every day that they know how to use. And then the teacher says, oh, yeah, you, you know, you ask a lot of questions that have to do with keeping the car going and making it go straight. Why don't we all figure some things about that out. Why don't, why don't we investigate that? Figure it out together, right? And then they um, generate some additional questions about what they could figure out and do experiments about. And they talk a little bit about how to do that. And then they design experiments, they run them, they present their data to each other. Now, the deal is everybody needs everybody else's data they, or everybody needs everybody else's results, I should mm. say because everybody's trying to make a car that works well. So if you divide up the work of answering the questions, how can I make it go straight, straighter, okay? How mm. can I make it go farther, right? Then, um, then hey, they need to listen to each other, mm. right? So they run their experiments and they report to each other and then they go on. Oh, well, then what happens is, 
they see the data people are collecting. And, you know, somebody would run, try something out. They don't know the word, minor might not know the word trials. Let's like mm. the kids would try something out five times. And, you know, three times the data would be like, you know, pretty close to each other. And then there'd be something out there and something out, out there, you know. Mm. And they'd start asking each other questions like, well, you did it five times and only three of them are similar to each other. What was happening those other times? Maybe you didn't answer the question well enough. Maybe you didn't run your procedure well enough. Mm. Then they start talking about, you know, experimental method, which is an important thing to talk about in science, right? So they start to start talking about experimental method and they start giving each other instructions about how to do it well. And if the teacher, you know, makes a chart on the wall. You know, when we're designing an experiment, here are the things we have to be careful about. Mm. I'd love to step back a second and then circle back around to this. So we're kind of getting into a bit of detail of the vehicles yeah. in motion unit at the moment, which is which is great. So let's just keep going with that. But you mentioned the first phase, which is messing about, and students identify kind of, you know, factors that influence. I'm trying to remember the... the factors that might influence the way that something works. Yeah, and I'm trying to remember the overall design challenge for this one it was something like design a vehicle that goes straight far and fast or something like that well it was i think it started out straight far and fast and then at some point it became straight and far and then at some point it became straight and far and carries a load oh that's right straight far and carries a load yeah so there and, were hills in it sometimes and sometimes there weren't hills that's right the the story was it's like a you're building a buggy to do some transport in Antarctica or something like that. Yeah. It was, it was yeah. good. So you do that. And then the first design challenge, what do you call them? You call them learning sets. The first learning set of about four is students have to build a very simple kind of balsa wood cart that has just the main body, which is just a stick of wood, uh, like a you know, two centimeter by two centimeter by 15 centimeter piece of wood or something. Then it's got an axle through it and some very, very simple wheels. And they roll that down a set of a ramp, which is stacked up on a set of books. And then they kind of measure a few things. They look at how far it goes and they look at kind of how much it varies from a straight line that they've ruled along the floor. So I assume it's quite easy for teachers to, to listen and kind of envisage what what that would look like. I'm keen for you to give us a bit more detail about when those students come together because there's a few things that happen. Uh, the yeah. students come together, they share what they found, and then you mentioned that they actually, as is the case in medicine, they each identify or in groups they identify something they're going to investigate, then they go away and they investigate that. But also in our discussion, we haven't actually touched on a lot of what I think is really powerful about your resources, which is the amount of scaffolding provided and the way that you tell students, you know, you give them templates. You say, this is the thing that we want you to pay explicit attention to. This is how we want you to report back and you prime them. So it's, I mean, to listeners so far, it might sound like, oh, we they go away, we come back, we have a discussion and it's all kind of loosey-goosey. But in fact, it's all very, very clearly thought out. So can you, for listeners, can you go into a bit more detail about about that process and help them see the level of detail and planning that has gone into designing so this phase. What, so what we figured out about how we could, what happens in a normal classroom in a traditional classroom is that the teacher teaches something and then gives the kids worksheets to use. Okay. We didn't want to give worksheets with lots of practice, but we 
But the idea of worksheet, there's something compelling about with respect to kind of support that each student has. So what we did was we dreamed up something called design diaries. A design diary is a set of pages, each one of them useful in some, for some aspect of the design process. The one where they're messing about that helps them, guides them through messing about, you know, tells them something about trying it out, you know, send it down the hill two or three different ways, down the ramp two or three different ways. How far did it go? In what direction did it go? Why do you think that's happening? Try it a different way. What happens, et cetera, et cetera. The one for running, for designing an experiment helps them to choose out what they're going to vary and what they're going to keep constant and has them write down their procedure. Okay, then it gives them places for collecting their data and asks them to, you know, what trends they see and what they therefore can um, conclude from that. Hmm. There's one for my design ideas, which comes somewhat later where they have a three-column chart, where the first column, they write down each of their design decisions. I'm going to use this kind of bearing. I'm going to make the wheels this size. I'm going to put rubber bands around them. I'm, you know, And then there's another column where they fill in the evidence that they've seen from the experiments that they and their peers have done that justifies. And there's another column where they fill in um, any science that they've read or that they've made sense of in class that um, also justifies. Okay. okay. And they make a chart of a chart of that. So there are about six or eight of these design diary pages, types of pages that they that they use. They iterate, so they use the same ones over and over again as they do it. Okay, cool. So they'll come together after they've kind of so rolled the thing. So they're coming together. Okay. So there's also the way we make things happen. We figured out some things about how to have the class act as experts for each other. We have the students work in small groups, and they do work in small groups, not as individuals, for a lot of practical logistical reasons. If everybody's working as an individual, well, we thought the collaboration in small groups was quite important. They get to find out as they talk to each other, they can figure out what they don't understand and somebody else can help them understand something. If they're figuring something out, you know, their peers can say thank you. You know, I mean, there are all kinds of reasons for working in small groups that have to do with learning. And then the practical reasons have to do with if you've got 30 or 35 kids in a class. Okay, how can you have them share with each other in a way that keeps their attention and that moves them towards rigorous thinking and rigorous sense making? Okay, so if you can have eight presentations across the class, which is pretty big groups for 35 people, so I might have nine presentations in a group of 35. If you can have eight or nine presentations, instead of 17 or 18 presentations in a group of 35, class of 35, 
takes a lot less time. They can present, all present to each other, and the teacher can be a facilitator of discussion to keep that meaning making that they're doing, that advice giving that they're doing at the level that it needs to be. So what happens is that they're always supported, as you were saying, in everything they do. Okay, they might work in small groups to do something. And when they work in small groups, they have these design diary pages. And they come together and they make presentations to the class. And they have guidance. There are three or four different kinds of presentations they might make about investigations they carried out and what they discovered about and the evidence for it, about what they plan to do in their designs, about what they've done and how it's not working. And then at the end, you know, here's, here's how it worked. And here's what we did. Here's why we did it. Here's how we got there. And in each one of those presentations, types of presentations, they know what to, you know, they know what to present to each other. And they present to each other, they take questions, and there's discussion, and the teacher supports them, right, in keeping the discussion at the right level. There's also for support something that we call a project board that is a variation on the problem-based learning, I forget what they call it. Whiteboarding? Whiteboarding, yes. Thank you. On problem-based learning, whiteboarding. So our projects are somewhat different than a single diagnosis. What happens is that they've got some big thing that they're working on. It's a big design project they're working on. They're working on different pieces of it at a time, sometimes building on what they did before, sometimes doing different pieces and then putting them together. We wanted something that would help them support them as a whole class as they're working on the pieces and then getting back and remembering the big project itself and why they're doing that. So a project board, the teacher might write on the project board as they're having discussions or somebody in the class, some student in the class might write on the project board. It could be done in an Excel spreadsheet. It could be done on butcher block paper on the wall. It could be done on something smaller, but something smaller really isn't big enough. And they keep track of what do we think we know in the first column? What we wonder about in the second column. I've got, I've got it written out here. Do you want me to read it out? Yeah. It's, so we've got, what do we think we know in the first column? What do we need to investigate in the second? The third one, what are we learning? Then what is our evidence? And you emphasize kind of links between the different co- columns in terms of what are we learning? What's our evidence? And what does it mean for our challenge question? Yeah, that's really how we're going to use it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that last one. That's right. So that's just another one of the supports for making problem-based. Well, we started out that we were talking about problem-based learning and making it work for design. This project board happens to be something that borrows from problem-based learning to make project-based learning work. Mm. So all these things that we took from problem-based learning, in fact, all these different supports we're talking about, we took in some way from problem-based learning. It turned out in the end that those are the kind of supports that help somebody when they're working on a project or help a whole, you know, a whole cohort of kids when they're working on a project move towards success and move towards success in such a way that they're successful with addressing the challenge. They're also recognizing what they're doing along the way and becoming better and better problem solvers or designers or diagnosticians or whatever it is. 
and they're learning the content that they need to learn as well and making sense of it as they go along and keeping track of their refining the sophistication and their understanding as they go. Mm. And again, I'll share a quote from the paper here. And in fact, I came across your paper because I was looking through what does the research say section in a book on project-based learning. And there were a lot of studies cited and it was claiming that, you know, project-based learning can do all these things. And I thought, I want to have a bit of a look. So I was kind of looking through the studies and some of them were small and not that rigorous, et cetera, et cetera. But I came across yours and I was skimming through it to kind of get a sense for it. And I came across this section and I thought, these people are really serious about about scaffolding learning. You wrote, middle school students do not come to school ready to take on challenges as career-minded medical students and business school students do. As well, they are not yet good at having an informed dialogue and they do not know how to organize themselves to solve a big problem. They do not yet appreciate the need to make connections between what they know and what they are encountering. Because of their naive level of knowledge and metacognitive skills, middle schools are in great need of scaffolding that are students in professional schools. So I think that kind of captures what you've been talking about, just the level of detail and planning that you've gone to in order to scaffold these middle schools and also acknowledging the difference between them and business schools slash medical students. Although I assume that people who teach business at school and medical students would probably also say, actually, they probably need quite a bit of scaffolding as well. They do, absolutely. But it's at a different level, a different kind. So you've kind of alluded to the three challenges that you outlined in your paper, there was the iteration and sequencing, which we have talked about in a reasonable amount of detail in terms of, in a structured way, planning out how the science concepts are revealed. What we were probably talking about more than, well, we touched upon it was getting to a classroom culture, but we could talk about it more. But I'd really like for you to give us a bit of an idea of this, this challenge of getting to the science. So we've talked about the scientific process and supporting that in terms of students going away, coming back, making iterations. But for example, in this Vehicles in Motion guide, let's take the idea of friction. When is the idea of friction introduced? How is it introduced? And how is it then evaluated whether or not students have really grasped this idea of friction? So the idea in learning by design project-based inquiry science is that we tell students what scientists have named some some phenomenon, Mm -hmm. okay, after they have experienced the phenomenon. I don't want to say after they've discovered the phenomenon, but after they've experienced the phenomenon. So uh, what happens with the vehicles is that, you know, they veer to the side, they stop far short of how far they want them to go, and the kids figure out some ways, you know, of dealing with that and some of the experimentation they do. But then when they get to the point where they've done that, the curriculum moves into, well, why does that work? Why did it work that way? Okay. Mm. So they've now discovered this phenomenon. They found some ways of dealing with it, taking advantage of it or or mitigating it, one or the other, mm-hmm. right? And now we say, well, the, the curriculum says, so next thing, you know, so why does that work? And, you know, they all have some ideas about that. So there's some discussion about it, okay? And then they read something usually not very long about that phenomenon. So they read something about friction. Mm. 
And I love that, how that reading, that explicit reading was kind of built into the program as well. Sorry, please continue. It's built in. And, it, mm. and you know, the rule is after they've experienced it and keep it short. Mm. Okay. And make sure it connects to what they already know. I also noted that you, you really didn't dumb down the language either. You were really using a lot of the scientific terms in there as and well. And the kids love that language. Mm. Okay. It's not just vocabulary to them. I mean, you know, a lot of times in science class, teachers present put vocabulary words on the, on the wall. Mm-hmm. It's not just vocabulary to them. They have experienced it. They've figured out how to either take advantage of it or mitigate it. Mm-hmm. And now they're ready to learn the language for it and to be able to go out. They're proud of what they did and they're ready to go out and share it with others. And they're learning that language for, um, you know, so they can go show off. They're, these are middle schoolers, mm-hmm. right? Sixth, seventh, eighth grade. Mm. Okay. So they're learning the language for that. We use the scientific vocabulary, but you know, we make sure that it connects to the experience they had. And since we had some control in designing the curriculum over what experiences they were going to have, we know how (laughs) to connect the experiences that they had. Your car veered off to the side. Why? Well, because you know, on one side or the other, there was some extra rubbing that caused friction. Mm-hmm. Okay. And friction is, and then you tell them what friction is. How do they really make sense of that? Was the rest of your question, right? Yeah. Also, how does the teacher know that they've made sense of it? Yeah. So you're right. Just because they've experienced it and read it doesn't mean they understand it. So we have a series of reflective kinds of scaffolds that go through the curriculum. And that's part of the answer. So every time I've read something, there are stop and think questions that help them get at the content of it. Every now and then along the way, there are reflect questions that help them to anticipate when it's going to be useful to them. And I think there's one other kind of reflection questions as well, but it doesn't matter. I don't remember them, but it doesn't matter. So that's one way with the reflection questions and the things that they're answering in order to, these questions they're answering in order to make sense are the same, you know, the answers are what the teacher can use to gauge what the kids understand. Okay. And if they want to give grades based on that, they can have their discussions in class with answers to the questions and then ask the kids to go home and write answers for homework, you know, that they're going to turn in for Mm. grade. Okay. And there's a second way that the kids get to understanding and the teacher gets to assess. And that second way is that we ask them to make scientific sketches of things that they're doing. It might be with the forces in motion, they make force diagrams. Okay, so we ask them to do that. They do in sixth grade, if they're doing this unit in sixth grade, they do do something with vectors, which math teachers will tell you they're not ready for. But they're not using, they're not using numbers with the vectors. It has to do with how long it is and what direction it goes in. And they're plenty capable of that. Mm. So they sketch representations that are developmentally appropriate and that get across what they've learned. And then the third way the teacher gets to assess is that they have to use all of this stuff they're learning later on when they're justifying design decisions that they're making. Okay, so they express themselves in design decisions and the teacher gets a chance, they get a chance also to, to know 
what they understand and what they don't. And the teacher gets a chance to assess. And that's another one of those times when they make presentations to each other. Okay, so they've come up with their idea about how they're going to make the cars go straight and fast based on straight and fast, straight and long, based on the set of experiments everybody's done. Okay, and now they plan for that. Okay, how they're going to do it. And they present that to the class. Okay, now you might say that making presentations from nine groups of kids for something about that's basically going to be the same for all of their at this point, this particular one is going to be the same for, for all of their cards. might take too much time. And that's true. Instead of presentations, they can make posters, put them on the wall, look at the posters, <laughs> and then have discussion around the posters and mm. point out to each other the misconceptions that some of them have or, you know, celebrate ideas they hadn't thought about. Mm. That's great. And I thought that was really powerful as well, actually getting students to, it's like, as soon as I've learned about this idea of friction, they use it straight away to design and then they have to justify with respect to what they've learned about friction, why their new design is better than their previous design. So you're using that key language, you're linking it to new information, and you're also incorporating that kind of idea of justification in there. So this is one of the things I learned from Howard Barrows, the person I said had invented problem-based learning from medical school. I learned from him that redundancy is a key. Okay, you gotta you gotta be thinking about the same things over and over again in different ways because everybody has a different way, a different time, a different perspective, a different context in which they're gonna finally get it. Mm. Okay. Mm. <laughs> Everybody's building from different prior knowledge and the teacher says something one way and the kids don't get it, but another kid who's just figured it out might say it in a way that some other kid will get. So I also learned that from Alan Collins and cognitive apprenticeship. Mm. So yes, redundancy, peers, peer interactions, they're super important. Mm. Okay. So I feel like we've had a really good chat about what probably could be say is one cycle within one learning unit looks like from, you know, messing about to then students identifying factors they need to explore, going away in groups, coming back, discussing, designing based on that, introducing scientific language, using that, etc. But within Vehicles in Motion, there's actually four separate learning sets within which this cycle kind of occurs. And I think it's helpful for listeners to understand in detail what those learning sets are and how they sequentially build the scientific knowledge to enable students to have the skills and understanding required to answer the big challenge question. So could you tell us a bit more, Janet, about what is within each of those four learning sets in Vehicles yeah, in Motion? Yeah, so let me, let me back up a little bit first, though, because I think we didn't go through, uh, we, we missed the part where they're actually building it and seeing what happens and going back and iterating on their designs. Sure. So in every one of the modules, okay, in every one of the modules, they're messing about to generate questions. They're then dividing up the work of answering those questions across groups. If they're only a small number of questions, then you have multiple groups answer the same question. They're presenting to each other, either by making presentations or by doing posters, or by a couple people doing presentations and the rest are posters some way but they're presenting to each other and discussing it. They may send each other back to go do more investigation if they're not happy with each other's results. But generally, teachers don't want to do that because it takes too much time. 
Um, so they do something else. Teachers manage that. They then work on planning their designs. And I told you about the design diary page they have when they do that. They present to each other. Somebody might understand bearings better than somebody else and say, wait, but that won't work. If you want to do that, maybe you should do it this way. Mm -hmm. Somebody understands the science better than somebody else and says, well, I don't think you use the science very well for that. I don't think it's going to work. Um, Or I think what you should have, you know, the way you should have described the science is this. But after they do that, they revise their plans and then they actually construct whatever it is they're constructing. And they try it out and they run trials. Okay. And they've had some goals they're trying to achieve. And they run trials and it never works the first time. The first design never works. So at this point, they report back to their class again. You know, you remember what I was trying to do. Well, here's what I did and it didn't work. And here's why I think it didn't work. Or I need help with this, guys. Will you help me? Mm. Okay. And they do several iterations of that. Teachers find that reporting back in every iteration is too much reporting back. So they don't report back in every iteration. But at some point, they report back in some of them and they get to the point where they're finished and they move on. Okay. And moving on means going back to the big challenge, as when I said when I talked about the project board, going back to the big challenge, going back to filling in how we're going to use this. How's it, how's it report? How's it, how's, it, how's it relate back to the big challenge? And then going back and saying, okay, so what's the next set of questions? we want to answer that would be the next module Mm -hmm. okay and 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 continuing they also update they might have new questions that they add that they need to investigate as well and then they go on to the next module so with vehicles in motion there are four modules the first one i'm not sure i remember all of them but the first one focuses on friction in the context of getting the wheels getting the axles uh, and the wheels and the bearings that hold the axles to the body of the vehicle, getting those all in order. So it goes straight and far. Okay. Then they say, yeah, but it would be really great if our cars could, like we can make them go by themselves. I mean, we can only get to use a ramp now. Mm. And then they move on to next is getting it started. And now their goal is, to make it go as far as it can go with this propulsion system associated with it. So they have a, oh, in some old version of it, there were several different kinds of propulsion systems they could use. But right now, the way in the, in the current version, it's just a rubber band propulsion, rubber band and propeller propulsion, propulsion system. And they figure out how to basically manipulate the rubber band so that they get the propeller doing its best. They also decide which of several propellers, possible propellers. What concept does that introduce? Because that's quite a complex, what's the science that you introduce? They're not focusing on propeller design. What they're focusing on is forces, and they're focusing on some on the friction, because it's focusing on net force. Net force is the big deal there. Okay. Okay. So they're pushing it for, the propeller's taking it forward, and the friction from the car itself and from rolling on the ground are, are going against the propulsion force. And they're deepening their understanding of net force, which they also were doing in the first module. And I think they add 
to it the equivalent of Newton's second law? I believe they do. That comes in there also. In the next learning set, they're giving their vehicles a load to carry. And now they're looking at all three of Newton's laws qualitatively. They're not looking at numbers, but they're looking at all three of Newton's laws now from a different point of view, right? You increase the mass and what happens, okay? So they have a propulsion system that works well. They have a car that goes straight, and now they're going to put a load on it. The students are at this point actually mentioning Newton's laws? I think that they read about Newton's laws that they get named, I believe, in the second of the learning sets, the one where they're doing the propulsion system. We, at some point, also had energy in here, in with forces, but it was just, and people have asked why we don't also have energy in there at the same time. And the answer is, it just gets too complicated. Mm -hmm. They kind of need to learn about forces and need to learn about energy before they put them together. And it just overloads the challenge if they do energy too. I think in the fourth one, they have hills put into it. And now they've got another context for figuring things out about forces. Mm -hmm. And when they do it in sixth grade versus eighth grade, they do the first two and one of the third or fourth ones, but not both of them. Okay, fantastic. So we've gone through the micro process of like, the learning cycle within each learning unit. We've gone through the kind of macro, the narrative arc or the concept arc, getting from messing about right at the start to the big challenge. And we've done it for vehicles in motion, the first unit that you felt really works. These days, there are now 14 project-based inquiry science modules that cover my understanding of three years of middle school, as you call it in the United States. So how did you get from kind of vehicles in motion to what what is what is available now so we at georgia tech created about six months of physical science units and six months of earth science units, and they were all together the approach was called learning by design in every one of them they had a design challenge the physical science ones they were actually building things and trying them out in the world um, in the earth science ones, they generally were designing things on paper. I mean, it was more like engineering problem solving than engineering design. Mm -hmm. So they were doing things on paper. They had to figure out where to put a tunnel underground, given the geology of the, of the place. And they were learning about geology, uh, learning about different ask, kinds of rocks and minerals. Yeah. In that case, do, do students find that less engaging because they don't actually get to physically build something? Or did you find ways around um, that? found ways around it. When you're talking about tunnels, we found lots of examples of tunnels gone wrong. And they read lots of case studies of tunnels of explosions, oh, wow. tunnels gone wrong. And that got them really excited and got them understanding that you really have to know what the rock formations are before you start building the tunnels. Mm. And uh, I don't know, a couple other things. So that got them very excited about it. There are a lot of tricks. A lot of tricks you have to do. So designing these units takes somebody, theoretical, that's me, right? And somebody who knows pedagogy. And I mean, you might have the same person know several of these things, but somebody who knows the science 
and somebody who knows kids or who knows learners, the learner population, mm. right? It takes at least that mm. because you need that to make it exciting for the kids, mm-hmm. right? Exciting for the learners, keep them engaged. So we were, I know you want to know something about how all these things got tested. We were trying them out locally. So I just asked, so you had the physical science, you had the earth science. What about kind of chemistry, biology kind of stuff? We had no chemistry. We had no biology at, at Georgia Tech. Okay. Yeah, that's where I'm getting to now. All right. So we went to a publisher who I knew I wanted to use. The publisher was called It's About Time. They recently merged with Activate Learning, and Activate Learning is where you buy these things from nowadays. But we knew we wanted to publish with them. They publish active physics and active chemistry, maybe active biology too, high school curricula. And, you know, they're the best out there in terms of being hands-on. Okay. And so we knew we wanted to use those, use that publisher. And they said, time had changed since I got started. When I got started, they were publishing individual units. And by the time we were ready to publish these, they wanted to publish four years. Okay. And so I said, oh, so I got, you know, got upset for a little while. And then I went to some colleagues at Northwestern University and University of Michigan They were also starting from a case-based reasoning background. They were informed by case-based reasoning. They were also informed by something they called project-based science. Joe Krejcik has written several books about it. It's the notion of kids learning science by using the same kinds of tools scientists do and solving the same kinds of problems scientists solve. So they didn't have all the pedagogy we had, but it was they didn't have all the sequencing we had and all the supports we had, but it was the same idea. And they had a bunch of biology units. They had, I don't remember if they had chemistry or not, but they had additional earth science and they had additional physical science, which, you know, we needed all of that. And we wrote a proposal and we got money from the U.S. National Science Foundation to put all of this together. Am I answering the question you asked me or am I answering a different question? Uh, This is very interesting. Please continue. Okay. (laughs) So at this point, we ran into some issues. The pedagogy was different across the unit. Yeah. In fact, the units at all the three places were written somewhat differently, and we felt that we needed to have a single voice go through it. We felt we needed to have a single pedagogy go through it, or at least a single pedagogical framing go through it. And we all had to come to agreement on that. Uh, That was actually challenging. But we finally did. And we had to figure out, now I remember what I'm answering. We had to figure out how to take this pedagogy that we had for learning from design activities and turn it into a pedagogy that could also be used for problem-solving and answering big question kinds of units. So one of the units in the three-year curriculum asks about why do earthquakes and volcanoes happen in places where they happen? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just something people wonder about, right? And how come orbs in outer space don't hit each other, you know, don't ram into each other more often? Okay, that's something they think about. And in terms of problem solving, how can we make the school a healthier place? You know, we keep passing all our germs to everybody, right? 
this new company wants to move to this small town and they have a industry that depends on the water that runs through it. We really need to revitalize the town, but we've got to do it in a way so it doesn't pollute. So we don't ruin the industry that's already there. Okay. So, so that, you know, so those last two were problem solving ones and the two before that were, you know, big question ones. And we rethought the different times when we have the kids report out to each other. Um, we actually designed the project board at that time when we were doing that. All I can say is we simply had to do the work of figuring out how to make this pedagogy that was about whole groups, small, working in small groups, reporting the whole groups, whole classes, having whole classes help the small groups, going back to the board, you know, doing that again and again. We adapted it to these different kinds of problems. So it's a learning by design pedagogy that we use that became the backbone for project-based inquiry science. And we also had to make sure that we were covering everything that needed to be covered. And the geology unit I just told you about that we had created at Georgia Tech, that's not in that set of 14. We created a weather and climate unit for it. We didn't have a weather and climate unit. We created a genetics unit. There had been a genetics unit, but it, I think that one of the other schools had created, but it didn't work for some reason that I don't remember. So we created at least those two with uh, brand new. There might have been some other ones that we created too. They had a river unit that we made into an ecology unit, various and sundry things we had to do to get coverage that we needed. Okay. And then the other thing that we had to do to get to that was we had to really think beyond making and rewriting the units, refining the units, think beyond the kids that they were created for. It was urban kids in Detroit and Chicago for the ones that were from University of Michigan and Northwestern. And it was Atlanta kids, Southern kids in Atlanta. Was yeah. The ones that were yeah. And so I guess it's also often this kind of stuff is the stuff that happens in higher socioeconomic status suburbs. But in fact, you were working in some more low SES kind of scenarios as well, correct? We were at Georgia Tech. We were working in both. And the Michigan and Northwestern people were working in the inner cities, simply working in the inner city. Mm. And and for those who aren't in the US, what does inner city mean in terms of socioeconomic Oh, it's the, uh, it's the lower socioeconomic. Of course, cities now are becoming places where wealthier people live. But uh, but back 15 years ago, 10 years ago, they had not been gentrified as much yet. Cool. Did you want to say anything else about that? I kind of interrupted you there. Oh, I was just going to say where in the South you can have examples about going to the beach. You know, inner city kids in Michigan and I'm sorry, in Detroit may not be beach going. Yeah, totally. Chicago, Chicago, they've got the lakes. So we had a three things examples that we were using to make sure that that, that they were going from you know a lot of local units to a set of units that could work in a lot of different places and covered curriculum which is different everybody what needs to be covered is is slightly different everywhere but it was starting to get in some way i won't say standardized it was starting to become consistent you know across states at that time yeah, that was a big job. Mm. I'm wondering, what's your vision for how these units are used? So, say they cover three years, that might be from the age of roughly 12 or so to 15 or something like that, I would imagine. Throughout that time, 
How much of students' science instruction do you envisage would be through these types of units? Would it be balanced with, for example, the some whole, tradition? Everything? Thing. Tell us everything. more about that. Well, these units were written to cover everything. Okay, so in fact, there are, uh, I know you said you mentioned 14 units. There are actually 12 of them, I think, that are appropriate to 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. One unit got rewritten, and one of those 14 is an old version of something. And one unit turned out to be better for, it had content for fourth and fifth graders rather than the sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. But if you divide those units across the grades, I mean, it covers the whole year of each one. Now, does that mean that you always have to be doing project-based in, you know, everything that you're doing in school or in science? So here's the thing. It's more fun and engaging. And middle schoolers like fun and engaging. It focuses on, like I said, they experience things before they read about them, okay, which is not the usual way of doing it. So there are all kinds of things built in that help them be good learners, right? So there are two things that are at issue with respect to how much of the year do you do this. One of them comes from one of the quotations from the paper that you read earlier, you need to have a certain kind of classroom culture for the kids to participate comfortably and fluidly with this kind of pedagogy. So it's a kind of pedagogy where the kids have a fair amount of agency. I mean, their leash isn't very long, but it's longer than it is in a classroom where teachers in charge and you know, you're going through a textbook together, mm-hmm. right? Or everybody's running the same experiment or whatever it is. There's a lot of discussion and they have to learn how to have those kinds of discussions. And, you know, they comfortably move from activity to activity, doing experiments, reporting, asking questions, doing experiments, reporting, working on their designs, reporting, et cetera, et cetera, because they do it over and over. It gets to be second nature. Mm-hmm. So building up the culture to make it happen is an important thing for successful learning. The other thing is that once the kids, and this was what I was alluding to before, once the kids start enjoying science, they don't want to go back to being told things. They don't want to go back to just reading. They don't want to go back you know, just reading and making sense. They don't want to go back to simply seeing demonstrations. They don't want to go back to everybody running the same experiment and having to get the same solution. Mm. They like teaching each other. They like making sense together. They like feeling accomplished. They like all of that. And I tell you, the teachers do too. Yeah, and there's some videos within the resources as well of very passionate teachers talking about you know. Oh, I love those it. videos. <laughs> um, I had no idea when the publishers started doing the videos, I had no idea what they were going to be. And I saw them and I got so excited. Yeah, yeah. it's fantastic. Um, and it's like, it's the teachers speaking in their own voices and their own language about how to do all this stuff. I mean, I sound highfalutin, I sound academic when I talk about some of these things. And it's, the you know, the same things where, thing where I said that the peers might explain something to somebody in a way that the teacher can't. Mm-hmm. Teacher peers might 
explain something, give examples to other teachers that I couldn't do. Totally. And what you alluded to there was kind of leads in very well to my next question in terms of students don't want to go back. This is planned out. Even if we had planned this out to the end of year 12, for example, students still end up in college or university, right? So at some point there is a transition back to probably (laughs) a more traditional instructional approach. And given that you've produced three years worth of resources, that would probably be year nine or 10, depending on when you start it. What happens at that transition? And particularly I'm interested for some of the schools that you've worked with who have adopted this, what the heck do they do? following when the booklets run out? So our schools are set up in general so that 6th, 7th and 8th grade is in middle school and then you go to high school for ninth through 12th grade. Okay. In fact, we have schools that go from kindergarten through 8th grade, you know, and then you go to ninth grade. So the schools don't have the books run out because they're used in middle school. The kids go to high school and we had all kinds of, anecd- you know, anecdotal evidence. We had all kinds of reports back that they go back and complain to their middle school teachers about how it's not as exciting. We have to do this stuff the way we used to do it. It's not as exciting and they don't learn as much and whatever. We were hoping that that would influence high school teachers so they would want to do these kinds of things too. I did mention active physics, which is physical science curriculum for high school. And that's the projects in that are much shorter. I mean, they're a week or a week and a half long rather than being eight weeks long. But but I think the idea with those also is that the students are doing a lot of meaning making. They're having a lot of discussions. They're respected learners. So I think you don't have to continue doing all the same thing. But I think that there are certain values that are built into it that it would be a good idea if those values were enacted throughout school, right? Mm. I don't know what's happening in Australia in universities and colleges. I think in the United States, at Georgia Tech, where I used to be, and at Boston College, where I am now, there are a lot of faculty nowadays who are doing very interesting things in their classrooms. And it's not exactly learning by design or project-based inquiry science. But, you know, it's really hard for people to imagine all the support they need to give and how to give that and how to design all of that. So that takes a village. But, you know, I think we need to aim for that. The aim for there not always being right answers to things, for there to be a lot of consideration of options, for learners to be respected as people who are going to have ideas based on what they know, mm-hmm. for the idea that learning, making sense is an iterative thing, all that redundancy we talked about, all that trying it out in so many different ways. There are people who talk about a flipped classroom, you know, they're kind of talking about, they're aiming in a similar direction, but doing it kind of in a different way. I'll just say in a different way. I won't put any values to it. So I know that that's happening. I mean, I think that there's, what I'm seeing here in the States is that there's more awareness nowadays of what it takes for people to really learn than there was back when we were working on this. Okay, so I guess that kind of leads into my next question as well. Does it work? So, you know, <laughs> we, we as much, you know, we've talked a lot about engagement and things like that. We've also talked about really getting to the concepts and getting to the science. But at the end of the day, I know in America you have, well, my understanding is there's a, there's a high testing culture. You know, you've got we state way too much testing, tests yeah. and things like that. And really teachers in many cases and students are measured on their ability to perform in these high stakes written 
tests, you know, hundreds of people in a hall, etc. To what extent does this approach support people to be successful? Obviously, um, you feel it helps them to be successful as scientists, but in a testing culture, to what extent does it support them to be successful? And, and have you so, done research on this? Yeah, yeah, we have. Well, and others have too. So what we were aiming for when we got started was that they weren't going to do any worse in the test than they would have done anyway. And that there were all kinds of other skills that are not in the test that they were learning. That's about what problem-based learning in medical school was aiming for and getting in those days. Okay. So we did indeed find when we were doing this in Atlanta that at worst, that was what was happening. Okay. We also had reports from some of the schools that we were in that the kids who were in our classes did way better in the standardized tests than other kids had done. And I've heard reports of that. I don't have my fingers on it now to know, but I've heard reports of that over the years, that that is still the case. We had some experiences with our earth science units. Those are not the ones that went into the full curriculum. But before the full curriculum was done, we had some teachers who were kind of, you know, uncomfortable with all of the making sense together stuff and the presenting and the, you know, kids asking questions, whatever. Mm. And they did the activities in the units without that. And their kids did just fine on the standardized tests. <laughs> and they didn't learn how to be a scientist. But what can I say? Several years ago, one of my colleagues he got money again from the U.S. National Science Foundation to do an evaluation. And he did an evaluation with schools in, I can't remember if it was North Carolina or South Carolina. Oh, it was a whole big set of, it was a big set of schools. I don't, I don't know how many. 20? Um, More or less? Yeah, 20. <laughs> a big set. Yeah. I, I don't think it was 20 schools. I think it might have been more like 10 schools. Okay. But it was all the teachers in, in the schools. And they did randomized selection of which teachers were going to do their normal stuff and which teachers were going to do ours. And all the teachers went through the same teacher professional development having to do with the content and with the NGSS standards the new generation science standards. So they all had the same professional development with respect to that. Cool. And then the teachers who were doing project-based inquiry science also had professional development for the units themselves, mm -hmm. the approach and the units themselves. Mm -hmm. It was not a huge amount, a couple of days for the approach and a couple of days for, for each of the units. And they found significant differences. In which direction? Oh, the good direction. <laughs> <laughs> in our favor. Okay. In favor of our curriculum. I can get you the citation. Yes, please. I'd love to look into that. And we'll put yeah. that in the show notes as well. Yeah. I can tell you that the publishers have never heard any complaints about what the kids are learning. Complaints that they hear have to do with it's hard for teachers to get started 
Uh, you probably want to ask me about that too. Yes, please. That please, you can answer your own question now. Tell us more about what's <laughs> what it requires for teachers to actually do this effectively. Well, teachers have to learn a whole new way of being teachers to do this curriculum. I mean, they have to learn how to be. They have to set expectations and really trust the curriculum and trust the kids that if they do it according to the way it's written, that the kids are going to learn. And they will see that it's slow to get to really understanding something, which is why units are eight weeks long Mm. or eight weeks long. It's slow to get to that. It takes a lot of repetition. They have to experience you know, after the first time they experience it and they see everything their kids learn, it's, you know, it's a different thing, but it's scary. They have to have confidence in themselves. They have to be able to run a sense-making discussion. They have to be able themselves to learn what a good explanation is, right? Because they're having the kids make rigorous explanations along the way. I didn't talk about that in the sequencing of all of it, but In that sequencing, the kids are explaining using science regularly and iteratively making their explanations better. Mm. So they have to get used to iteration, to keeping track on a on a project board. You know, I mean it's 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 new ways of doing things and new skills. Mm. We found when you know, one of the teachers whose kids were doing way better on standardized tests after she started using our curriculum than she had before and way better than other kids in the same school who were at the same level. Okay. She was not the best facilitator of discussions that we saw. And she did not understand the science as well as some of our teachers understood the science. But she did her best. She believed in the kids and she believed in the curriculum. And she thought of herself as a learner across, uh, along with the students. She learned more science as she went along. That's great. She wasn't embarrassed to say, I don't know, <laughs> and to look it up or ask somebody, right? Mm. She wasn't embarrassed to do that. And the kids loved having a teacher who was learning along with them. Mm. That's so powerful. I'm wondering, in terms of this has been very targeted to the U.S. curriculum, I'm wondering two things. One, is it vulnerable? Is this program vulnerable to changes in the US curriculum? Like my understanding is maybe the Common Core has come in since this was published or something like that. And secondly, are you aware of anyone internationally who's not using the US curriculum who has used your resources successfully? Well, I know that we've talked about taking them to Singapore and I know that we've talked about taking them to Hong Kong. I don't know if they've gone to either of those places. I kind of think that they have, not just to those places. I think there might be someplace else they've gone also, Mm. but I don't know. Mm. In terms of are they going to get changed for new standards, Activate Learning has not yet fully integrated these in with its offerings. What that means is they offer it, but they haven't been making changes in it like they have in some of the other things that they've been doing. That's your publisher. The publisher. I don't know what the future holds with respect to that. I keep wondering about it. Mm. And every now and then I ask, but I haven't gotten any answers Mm. yet. I think you can put together 
schemes there to I, I, look. Every unit has to be adapted. You know, would have to be adapted in some way for wherever it's you know it's being being rolled out. I think it works best when you've got teams of teachers working together on that. They may be able to take something as a model and make it different, like uh, make it fit. Like our weather and climate unit uses maps from the United States. They'd have to, you know, a lot of things from the NOAA, National something, atmospheric something, I don't know. So it's it's our climate and weather watchdogs mm-hmm. and research center. And they'd have to get Australian maps um, to do it. But, you know, but Australia's big enough that the weather is different in a lot of different, climate's different, I should say, in a lot of different places, and I'm sure it's changing over time. So it's not a big deal to change that. You might want to, you know, in a unit that uses the Michigan land surface, you might want to change it to some land surface in Australia. So there's that. But I think even with, I'm not exactly answering your question. I know you asked about whether the units were going to change. I don't really know what the units are going to change. Okay. I'm really interested because I think probably almost everyone in education would agree that the skills that these kind of units promote in terms of the collaboration, the justification, the reflection, things like that, they are so important. And I think also many people would agree that getting to the science, it's so important that we do that because a lot of the stuff I see these days in terms of project-based learning and the reason why I haven't engaged with it much to date is the fact that I felt like the science or the content has been left behind. And it's quite interesting. I think what your example illustrates and what this discussion has illustrated is just how much hard work and thought it requires to build these quality resources that are actually going to sequentially step students through the skills and understandings required to get to the main goal. And, you know, in your case, took over 10 years, you build a team (laughs) with world experts in this stuff and you trialed it with hundreds and hundreds of kids and refined it iteratively over time. So to me, it's an absolute crime if these resources end up just on a dusty shelf somewhere and don't get adapted because that's what's stopping education from continuously progressing and building on the knowledge base that we're establishing. So I don't know. I don't know what we can do here. Well, I don't don't know either. But I mean, I think you're right. We need teams of people who are going to do the. They're they're old now. They're 10 years old. Mm. Um, We need teams of people who are going to going to do the next set of them. And I should tell you what I'm doing nowadays. Please. I'm on the faculty at Boston College. It's a university, but it's called Boston College. There's another university in the neighborhood called Boston University. So this is Boston College. It's a liberal arts university. It's also got some professional schools. And I'm in the education school now. I used to be at Georgia Tech. I was in computing, computer science, computing. Um, I'm in the education school and I've been the chief architect of a new master's program that is beginning in mid-August called Learning Engineering. Mm. It's not about learning to be an engineer. It's about engineering learning experiences. It's about designing learning experiences. We have, I think, as of now, I think six students in our first cohort and they are going to learn to be designers of learning experiences and to be the person on a team like the teams that we had 
putting together learning by design and then project-based inquiry science, they're going to be the people who know enough about all the different areas of expertise that are needed to do it. And enough of, and they'll have a design practice that they become good at. Um, and they'll be on teams that will design learning experiences that hopefully will be even better than what's in project-based inquiry science. So um, Exciting. that's my hope. That's what I'm doing now. I don't know if I'll get back to working on TBI science or not someday. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Right now, I'm pretty busy with this new curriculum. Yep. But, um, but, you know, I'm hoping that somebody will. I mean, one of the things that we need to do is integrate technology into it in ways that, you know, are consistent with the way that professionals use technology, mm. even when they're doing science and engineering. So uh, I don't know if there's somebody listening who wants to work on that. Yeah, we'll put the call out. And if anyone wants is interested in that, I think that I reckon there's got to be some people who are interested and keen to adapt it for the Australian curriculum, the UK curriculum, things like that. So please get in touch with myself or Janet and we'll see what happens from there. Yeah. Could be a good project. If a school does want to take this stuff and want to purchase it and try to run with it as is now before doing a major overhaul for a local curriculum, um, can they buy this stuff now? How much does it cost? That kind of thing. I don't know a lot about the cost. I know that the cost is consistent with the cost of other textbooks. Really? Even that, with all the building materials and things like that? Well, the building materials, are cons the cost of those is consistent with the costs that go with other inquiry curricula. Okay. As much as possible, the publisher provides materials that can be, be used over and over every year. I mean, there are two kinds of materials. They're the ones that get reused and they're the ones that have to get bought every year. The ones that get reused every year, a lot of those are things like index cards that some, they can go out and buy themselves, right? Yeah, okay. but, so I know that the publisher works a lot on the cost of it. Okay. So it may seem like a lot when people look at it, but um, it's consistent with other ones. Okay. As I said before, the name of the publisher is Activate Learning. Mm -hmm. I will make sure that they hear this podcast so they know where the sales came from. Okay. And there is a very, as you stated before, there is a very extensive teacher professional development set of materials. I like the videos best of all in all of it, mm. but there is other stuff available too. Mm. And I think it works best when you've got several teachers in a school or all the teachers in the school, you know, who are adopting it at the same time and they spend yeah. time together figuring out how to make it work. Yep. If it's not that, then teachers from a district or teachers from across districts. I mean, I think it works best if you've got cohorts of teachers who are going to interact with each other and help each other out. And then I know that the, I'm pretty sure that they have facilitators and mentors on the online system, that teach professional development system or support system that's there now who, who can provide some help as well. That's great to hear. All right. Is there anything else you wanted to say before we move into the uh, few closing questions? 
Oh, I think by this time I've said everything. Okay. All right. Uh, we've got a few closing questions we always ask people, Janet. Um, the first one is, what advice would you give to your first year researcher self? <laughs> oh, you told me I was going to get this question and I didn't think about it. Um, trust yourself more. Trust your intuitions. I found that every time I don't trust my intuitions, I'm sorry. Okay. What's your information diet like? Whose work do you particularly follow? Maybe you could recap some of the the names that you've already mentioned in today's podcast. I'm not sure if you're on Twitter. Is there anyone you should, we should be following on Twitter if you are on Twitter? Uh, I don't I do not do Twitter. I'm old. Or books or anything like that you'd like to recommend. Yeah. So I was the editor-in-chief of the Journal of the Learning Sciences for 19 years. And I like the authors who get published there. Mm-hmm. I mentioned before Alan Collins, Cognitive Apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. I've been following work on identity development recently because we found that kids who went through our curriculum actually became different kinds of people. I mean, they really really felt like scientists and acted like scientists. Oh, you got to tell us more Um, about that. Well, when I got started, um, I said that I wanted the kids to be doing what scientists do and to feel like scientists, but I kind of thought like when they were doing it, but I didn't understand that that was going to move to their core identity, you know, that they felt like scientific reasoners and Mm. they felt capable, they felt confident. There were things that they were doing that they knew were important. And somehow we had designed this so that that was happening but it hadn't been what we had been um, (laughs) what we had been designing towards Mm. okay so I did some additional research with my students after that looking at what it is that actually influences identity development and I was reading people like Na'il Nasser one of my students who I was working with Tammy Clegg C-L-E-G-G she's been doing wonderful work outside of school, kids in a community learning together and developing identity as capable people, Mm. as junior scientists, as uh, whatever it is there. What I have to say is I really enjoy reading articles from Journal of the Learning Sciences. And I really enjoy going to the International Society of the Learning Sciences conferences There's one called the International Conference of the Learning Sciences. There's another one called Computer Support for Collaborative Learning. Those are the things that I read and those are the people I interact with. I've been getting interested in educational games and what we can learn from those about engaging people, but also the roles that games might play in learning. I'm interested in ecologies of activities like things that kids might be doing something in school and there's something that they could be doing in after school programs or museums on the weekend or something that they could be doing they get really excited some activities they could be doing at home so ecologies of activities and things that they're excited about ecologies of learning technologies they could use i want to mention somebody else whose work i love related to that Um, Nicole Pinkard has been working with the city of Chicago to put in place 
all kinds of out of school activities that get kids engaged with science and activities that get teachers able to pull some of those things the kids are doing outside of school into what they're doing in the classroom. Wonderful. You've given us a lifetime's worth of stuff to explore there, Janet. That's super mm-hmm. exciting. You kind of already answered the next question, which is what's next for Janet Kolodna? What are you currently excited about when you talked about your master's project? But maybe if people want to, after this discussion and listen, they might be keen to jump on board and do that program, for example. Could you tell us a bit more about where people can find information about that? Yeah, they can look online at bc.edu slash engineering. BC is Boston College. Mm -hmm. And it's a really interesting program. It builds on all kinds of things that I learned in creating learning by design and project-based inquiry science. It has design studio and a reflective seminar as its centerpieces. It's a three-semester-long program, fall, spring, summer. And it's a design studio and a reflective seminar across all of those semesters, the students are working on a series of design projects that get more complex, more sophisticated over time. Instead of three credit courses, they do one credit modules that are specific to learning the things about some content area that are important for them as they do design. Okay. So there's a one credit module on motivation and, and engagement. There's a one credit module on games for learning you know, et cetera, a two-credit module on cognition and learning, and a three-credit module that's an introductory module on pedagogy and theories of learning and uh, things like that. Fantastic. Is there a deadline for signing up to that for the first uh, intake? We start middle of uh, August. I think that there's an end of July deadline for applying for this coming year. Okay. People would have to move to Boston. It's okay. not online. Well, it's okay. This podcast won't come out before the end of July, so they'll have a year to think about it. Okay. All right. Uh, The earlier they apply, the better. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. And um, Jenna, any last calls to action for listeners or things you'd like them to go away and do? I want people to always be thinking about engagement, you know, keeping kids engaged and motivated over long periods of time, about meaning-making discussions and about what the interests and identities of their learners are and how they can make use of all of those Mm. as they're fostering learning. Oh, and the support that learners need so that agency can be handed over to them um, in a way that will allow them to be successful. Mm. Professor Janet Kolodna, thank you so much for your time today. I see you checking the clock. We've been about (laughs) two and a half (laughs) hours. Even, yeah, even closer to two and a half. half. So, um, but there's just been so much for us to explore and unpack in terms of the depth and richness of your work. Something that's increasingly becoming important to me when I look into education, education research and approaches is the question of mechanisms. And when someone explains something to me or explore, I explore something, I always ask myself, what is the mechanism by which this is supposed to support learning? And that's really part of the reason why I love your work so much. You really start from a first principles basis with that work with case-based reasoning back with computers. And you've built up from that over a period of many, many years to design this complex and integrated instructional system now that builds on all that from first principles. And you can very, very clearly articulate how that is supposed to lead to learning. In addition to that, 
an impression I've got through exploring project-based learning in the past is sometimes with project-based learning, it does a great job of supporting collaboration, creativity, things like that. But the content is a bit, in some cases, a casualty. Now that that's obviously a bit of an usually, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's an overgeneralization, as many people do it well. But I think, I mean, I've also got the impression that some people are okay with that. They say, you know, the content's important, but really, twenty-first century skills are what needs to come first, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. For me, that's not that's not okay. And I think that our schools, in many ways, as when you answered the question of what should school education before at the start we need to be doing both and we need to be always searching for ways that we can do both in tandem and if we can't do them in tandem then we need to balance them in some way and that's why i'm really really excited about your work because it does have a lot of promise for developing those skills and that knowledge in tandem in a really rigorous way so thanks so much for dedicating your life in many ways to developing (laughs) this i think it's such an important thing Uh, for us to do. I'm really excited about this podcast and the fact that we're able to bring your work to more people. I'm lucky that through diving into another PBL resource, I came across your work and just happened to realize the value of it through skimming through a paper. And yeah, I'm sure there'll be, I'm hoping that there'll be people out there who listen to this podcast, explore your work more, and hopefully even get involved or build on it more. So thanks again for your time today, Janet. It's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah, I, you're a very good interviewer. I really appreciate the, the interviewing skills you have. All right. As a little postscript to this interview, Janet and I were just having a bit of a debrief afterwards. I made connections between what her approach and the general kind of approach to teaching, which is based upon cognitive science, which has gained a lot of traction recently in the educational community. Janet, can you tell us a little bit more about your views on kind of cognitive science-based approaches to instruction? So I have to first start by saying that I was educated as a cognitive scientist. Okay, I got my PhD in computer science and artificial intelligence and cognitive science were, you know, were my thing. But I think what I've learned over the past, it's almost 40 years since I got my PhD, is that cognition is only a piece of what makes learning effective. That retrieval effect is great, but if they're not repeatedly retrieving in the context of something that keeps them engaged, then it's not going to have an effect, Mm. I think, overall. And if the retrieval effect is only being used for memorizing things, it's not going to lead to, you know, to deep understanding and to, to masterful capabilities. So I encourage people to not only look at cognitive what cognitive science has to say, but also to look at what the learning science is, which seems to be, which is a bit more grounded in sociocultural theories than it is in cognitive science at this point. Mm. So what do the learning sciences have to say? What do the results coming from sociocultural theory have to say? Um, Those talk about the role of identity and, you know, caring about learning. They talk about keeping people motivated and engaged through their interests and through their identities and through responsiveness and not simply through piecemeal cognitive means. And they talk about the whole picture and the kind of the storyline of whatever doing being being quite important to the learning. Um, so I want to encourage people to pay attention to that. 
Cool. So from the cognitive science side, some big names are Daniel Willingham and probably Robert and Elizabeth Bjork. I've read a lot of their stuff and it's really influenced me. From the learning sciences approach, what are some of the names and resources people should check out? Well, I mentioned Alan Collins, you know, the old people who are older than me are Alan Collins and Jim Greeno and Roger Shank. Uh, he wouldn't appreciate me calling him old. But, <laughs> Didn't know who um, would. <laughs> he, he, was my, he was my advisor. I mean, he was old, he's older than I am. There's also Bransford, John Bransford. I mentioned the Elanasser. I'm trying to think about who's doing the, the Sasha Barab. There's somebody who's done a lot of good stuff. I always know what Kate Balakchik. I always know when I need them to do something. Okay. Well, You've appropriately indexed them. Yeah, yeah. They're not indexed to just just naming. Yeah. Just naming off people. Yeah, I can give you another list. You can attach. Okay. Great. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the E Triple R podcast with Professor Janet Golodner. As always, you can find show notes with links to all of the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com. And as mentioned in the intro, if you'd like to become a patron, just go to patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R to sign up. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues if you've got something out of it. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts or reflections about this episode or any other ERRR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.